just because of how many people are actually affected by chronic pain, but that the costs of treatment are very high and there's not a cure per se that we think about cures or curing a bacterial infection. These last much longer. And because of that, these are lifetime costs in some cases. But not only do you have this cost component being incredibly expensive, and in even worse ways, you have inadequate access to healthcare and barriers to it, and people who need it the most can't get it. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 213 of Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. I'm joined today by Dr. Brian Mariscalchi. I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Mariscalchi back in Miami in Aspen a few weeks ago now. He is an interventional pain physician currently based out of Vanderbilt, as you can perhaps tell for our viewers who are watching this on the YouTube channel by the guitars over his left and right shoulder. Dr. Mariscalchi is 50% of the pain power couple along with his wife. Dr. Shravani Dabakala, uh, who I also met and got to chat with. Dr. Marskolchi, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So I am excited to talk about your uh, the breadth of the things that you do in pain management, because you're a clinician, obviously. You're a business owner. We talked about your interest in finance. You're self-trained in coding, and you have diverse interests and skills. So we'd love to hear, just at a high level, Talk about your current scope of responsibilities professionally. Yeah. So I still do anesthesia, maybe 25% of the time. I'm usually a GI endoscopy in an outpatient setting and very much enjoy that. The remaining 75% is in chronic pain and interventional chronic pain and the full scope of you know, everything from medication management to the bread and butter procedures to peripheral and uh, you know, neuromodulation. And how about in terms of the businesses with which you're involved that address specific facets of pain management? Yeah, well, just like I really much enjoy both aspects of the clinical practice, anesthesia and pain medicine, I have two companies and I focus one on anesthesia, which is a medical device, and the second in digital health, and that's for uh, chronic pain. One of the things that we discussed when we were sitting at Aspen in the lobby there was uh, digital health, uh, you know, it means different things to different people. And it's also like shiny object right now, I think, in terms of the healthcare discussion. So tell me about like, what does digital health mean to you when you use those words? What are you talking about? And what is your company specifically doing? Absolutely. So, you know, maybe starting with the first principles and just a, a story for, for how it became. And really what was going on was when I think about problems in medicine, I see often things that are unmeasured or not uh, currently, you know, quantitative in any way. They're more just speculative or, you know, one might say it's like the art of medicine. And chronic pain definitely was that. Uh, you would be in an office typically to see new patients and you would meet them for the first time and you would get extra information that they would bring to you perhaps. You follow them every few months, they might come back at a routine interval. But what happened in between was really just, you didn't know until you brought them back and ask them how they were doing. 
that created large gaps in care. You know, we make medical decisions based on how well someone responds to a treatment. But how are they doing at home? And there's a large amount uh, that goes into that, not just how they're feeling and maybe what a pain score is, but also mentally, how are they doing? Functionally, how are they doing? Socially, professionally, how are they doing? What is their ability for, you know, maybe risk in certain areas thereof? But that has to currently in current practice be gotten from a patient by asking them questions in an office. And it's very much just left up to uh, guesswork, like, you know, physician just having their own intuition and art of medicine and eliciting that from the patient. But you could do better. Uh, certainly, we have assessments, like if you were to want to know, did this medication work? Or did this procedure work? We have a quantitative way of understanding that. Every academic publication that ever has been published took a scientific approach at those questions to get quantitative data to publish and use statistical analysis to figure out what was really going on. So if we want to know if a medication cures depression, we have different ways of doing that. Some are assessments and similar for chronic pain. And we can deliver assessments at home to patients and get real data back to make better clinical decisions and take that speculation out of chronic pain medicine. On my end, that was a digital product and digital health or digital products and digital tools to solve those uh, you know, needs that we find uh, in medicine. Talk about, you had mentioned sort of your self-guided journey in terms of your software coding, kind of however you would describe the technical skills required to operate a digital health company. What does that look like for you? Yeah, uh, you know, obviously started at a young age of being very interested in web and mobile design and wanting to do it on my own, uh, create businesses around them, and even at a young age. So self-taught on, you know, kind of just the modern and popular frameworks and, you know, kind of culminated in me being able to code anything from a microprocessor to, uh, you know, modern web frameworks. That helps a lot. You know, uh, digital health has a contrast to like physical goods, you know, physical goods, you have logistical elements that don't exist in the digital realm in terms of like, where do you warehouse it? How do you distribute it? And who ultimately sells like this physical product? And it is something you can put in people's hands. Digital products don't have that, but they have higher barriers up front where you have to make it, monetize it, have customers, have a user base, grow that user base to something impressive till it can actually gain outside validation and recognition. The contrast is with physical goods. People understand the value of a patent and understand perhaps like the value of like having regulatory approval of, uh, you know, FDA 510K clearance, let's say. And those are barriers that you can get to even before you've monetized something. Digital health, you often have to uh, you know, make something very impressive, have the user pace, monetize it, and then you know, kind of people get interested. So why do I bring it up? Well, I bring up that story because having the ability to code yourself, you can get it to that point, get it to the interesting point, show something. Whereas physical goods, you know, they also get interested when you can show them and put something down on the table. But that's you know kind of the barriers to to entry, and often many of the digital products is you know put, putting something out there, have the user base grow. It's kind of an interesting process because also not that simple. You realize that anyone can code to a degree, uh, and you see a lot of digital products. If I were to open up an app store and search for diabetes, you would have so many different 
monitoring applications that have been created from people who are probably still in high school all the way up to people who have you know the utmost qualifications to do so. Uh, what makes them actually successful is the process behind it and the team behind it and you know the the process that you take through innovation it's a very interesting thing to kind of see it from the first identified need and often you don't just say like oh i want to make a diabetes app you make a diabetes app and roll it out it is much like identifying something like i had suggested earlier where i was in clinic and i was you know asking multiple questions to understand how a patient had been doing in the last you know interval before i had seen them and then try to paint a picture in between just through their you know questioning and i found that the need you know was there primarily because of recall bias physician bias just lack of objective data, but you're making real decisions off of that. So then it affects clinical practice. And that was like the need. Um, but often this process starts not just with one need. Like I didn't just realize one thing. I realized a lot of things. And that's the one that was kind of filtered down into where then I actually wanted to build a solution and a team and a company and a product around. And it's kind of, uh, you know, there's a lot of problems in medicine and you can choose a lot of them, but, you know, often even not through just a personal experience that, you know, you have to be a physician, you know, people create these just based on themselves, friends, family members who have a disease, something that they might be doing research on and they come to a discovery that they might not, no one else knows about their, their niche, you know, element is not known to others. They found it through their research. And, you know, there's also, you know, kind of just that recognition as well that you are in the right place at the right time and you just, you know, uh, ha happened upon the discovery like that. But a lot of different ways to filter that initial concept into a product. Um, and, you know, certainly knowing how to code gets that accelerated by a, a large mean. Did you consider a career alternative to medicine prior to going to med school? Mm, yeah, I'd say a lot. Um, like, I really was interested if you talked to me in like early in high school, probably wanted to be a lawyer. I actually do medical legal work now and very much enjoy it. I also wanted to do computer science and, uh, you know, very much thought, you know, should I, you know, instead do that? I ultimately chose medicine because it allowed me to be incredibly flexible. Uh, I still do anesthesia. I do chronic pain. I have a medical device company, I have a digital health company, I still do medical legal work. And you know, you can find time to do the, those passionate things, but ended up choosing medicine as my primary uh drumming up point because I was most passionate about you know patient care and um taking care of people and then also affecting change in large groups of people through like digital products or medical devices, where instead of me, you know, limited by an office and how many people I can see in a day, you can develop products that other people can use when they're seeing patients. And that's, that's what I'm most passionate about. Um, and, you know, I thought that, you know, in the legal realm, you know, you really only logistically able to help one person at a time. And, and those, you know, kind of endeavors take a very long time to see through from uh, beginning to end. Yeah. I'm curious when you were having these clinic experiences with patients and they're trying to remember, you know, what, what time they get out of bed and you're trying to like interpret that and you're, you're experiencing this, there's a gap in care here because we have a gap in information. There's a, there's perhaps a software solution for this. Take me to that time and tell me about sort of what you were 
what it functionally looked like for you to start working on writing some code yeah. and who else were you involving? How are you soliciting feedback and what did the, the genesis of this company look like for you? Yeah. At the time, you know, it was just real realizing that I, I had this gap. I realized that, you know, it could just be better. You ask somebody, hey, three months ago when I, or longer sometimes, when I did the last epidural steroid injection, how did you do? How long did it last? How long did it work for? What percentage of relief did you get? And insurers started asking more and more, like, did they get 50% pain relief? And did they get 50% functional improvement? And how long did it last? And we're not going to let you do it again unless you can show that and prove it. That sh that shifted everything where now there was a, a need to have that enhanced documentation. The, the other things that came out of it was liability protection, something that you don't see often, but I know a lot of people personally who have lawsuits against them and have altered their clinical practice and often sometimes their careers. And these are peers that I know, and there's a need for that enhanced documentation, liability protection. I'm taking the speculation out of some of these elements um, and using quantitative information uh, for it. The last thing was, you know, reimbursement. You know, we we also through COVID had seen the change in reimbursement patterns that physician visits can be done remotely. There is a advantage to having things done remotely or getting information from sources remotely. And um, you know, it is a process that all insurers now recognize and pay for. So I had a digital, I had a need, and I had then, you know, experiencing that personally. Then I had insurers who wanted to pay for it. I sat down, the real story is I, I sat down with my business partner, Dr. Marsetti, uh, who's another anesthesiologist, and you know, we talked about the problems. I met him in a, a professional society in Maryland for the entire state and you know, saw that you know, he was very interested in affecting change, as I was, and just talked about like, well, what could you do if you had you know, a few years and you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, what would you actually do? And we talked about it and we did it. That was exactly it. It was like, well, yes, like, you know, this is a, a very large opportunity here. You know, why don't we affect change? It's not only something that, well, if it just ended in just me using it, I would love it. But if it, you know, helped people, let's do it. And there was just, you know, not really that many barriers to entry once we had kind of thought about it from the need um, the intellectual property landscape funding or where we could get funding from getting partners and other clinics, hospitals, organizations on board to help us through that. And we thought about, you know, how many people it could help. We thought about, you know, does the technology exist or do I have to invent something new that no one's ever seen before? You know, when we thought about all of it, it was just kind of in lockstep that this was something out of other ideas that we had talked about you know, something certainly worth pursuing. And we'd also, you know, even at the time as a complete aside had, you know, I'll talk about the failure or something that didn't get pursued that got stopped early was we thought about, you know, objective measures of healthcare quality. Now, certainly that's in the same theme or the same vein as looking at, you know, quality of pain care and how do you objectively, you know, say, you know, that it's, beneficial to a patient that what you're doing is beneficial. We wanted to look at it more as a system. So could you, you know, look at quality measures uh, system-wide? And that had a lot of issues such as like the cost of data to do that is very expensive. Access to that data, challenging. 
And subsequently, you know, like the dissemination and monetization models around it didn't make that much sense. But, you know, what I'm really saying is that when you have these ideas for a business, you're kind of creating this mental rubric and uh, going through it and scoring these ideas to see what's worth pursuing. And that might also just be obvious. Like if you, you know, pitched an idea and you were just totally in the right place at the right time and you're like, yeah, let's go for it. There's no barriers here. Let's do it. Certainly that does happen. But, you know, there is a framework here that, you know, you, you can, um, you know, work off of uh, as you go through that. Hmm. So for our listeners, if you go to apmsuccess.com slash 213 for episode 213, I'll include links in the show notes for anything that Dr. Marsculture wants to include, but for these companies in particular, for physicians who are like, huh, this sounds interesting. Talk about, are you working with other doctors on your platform currently? Or if somebody wants to talk to you about this, what would that look like? Yeah, now, you know, this is now used by academic institutions, uh, publicly com- uh, com- publicly traded companies, everything from clinics where there's only one doctor to multi-specialty clinics to large multi-state clinics to, uh, you know, academic centers. And, um, you know, we are very excited, um, work with Amazon Web Services. We recently got a Amazon Web Service um, social equities grant. And particularly for uh, evaluation of social determinants of health and to try to break down barriers to access to healthcare. And uh, chronic pain is one of the worst offenders here. So a lot of our current work, you know, we created the platform, we have the data, we have the quality metrics, and they're kind of being utilized by, you know, multiple parties um, in industry as well as clinically. But then the next, you know, kind of, you know, iterations here are, are to really, uh, you know, affect social change. Chronic pain, now one of the most expensive things that we have in terms of healthcare, more than diabetes, more than heart disease, the expenditures of chronic pain are huge, just because of how many people are actually affected by chronic pain, but that the costs of treatment are very high, and there's not a cure, per se that we would think about cures or curing a bacterial infection. These last much longer. And because of that, these are lifetime costs in some cases. But not only do you have this cost component being incredibly expensive, and in even worse ways, you have inadequate access to healthcare and barriers to it. And people who need it the most can't get it. We don't have enough chronic interventional chronic pain physicians in America, roughly maybe about 4,500 for the entire country. So it's a, it's a rarer thing to find. And, and that then chronic pain delivery is given by other physicians who don't have interventional chronic pain training. So they can't do interventions, but uh, can do medical management and then get, uh, you know, referrals and get patients to interventional chronic pain physicians if they're available. But I mean, people come from out of state to see me when I was both in Maryland and while I'm in Tennessee here. So that kind of speaks to that. This is like, you have like a multi-state capture rate and that, you know, this could be in rural areas inaccessible. Then, you know, we know that the lower the highest degree that you've achieved, you know, high school versus graduate and everything in between, the lowest end of that, people have a higher likelihood of chronic pain. Similar, you can predict it off of age, race, gender, and social economic status, in addition to education. You could predict it based on zip code and things like this. And the outcomes 
are not what you would want. Just looking at somebody who is female versus male, um, we have females who report substantially more chronic pain in certain scenarios, similar for ages races, you know, as well. And uh, these these barriers are just atrocious. When you actually look at the research behind what's going on, um, there's a clear problem, and that's widely recognized. And now, not, not I mean, so so recognized that we have national agencies trying to mitigate it, and you even have public companies trying to. That's where we have been uh, working with Amazon Web Services for this to break down these barriers to allow access to high quality care. To the people who need it the most. And in many ways, you know, when we're talking about this remote management of chronic pain, it offers new ways for patients to access care that they didn't previously have before. Let's say you need to work. Obviously, we all do, you know, to pay our bills and do what we need to do. You can't take time off. So opening up the remote realm of televisits allows people uh, who might not make it into the office or have to take a day off of work and sick days if they may not even have those sick days because they have a chronic illness already that's assuming their sick days. These technologies allow you to get care in novel ways. And we try to break down barriers to get this information, not just from somebody who accesses the app, but also through text and phone and novel methods of taking these assessments that make it that much easier uh, instead of, as you would think about, like sitting down, taking the assessment all at once or taking it all at once on an app. People have disabilities. You might have to call them. They may be deaf and need a visual representation of this. And even over a phone call, they some people might prefer text. Some people just want a phone call. Some people want it to be in person. Some people want to do it themselves on their own time on the app. And you have to offer all of that and then have the tech stack behind it. Then you have to have the uh, personnel staff and the medical professionals to make that a you know system that works seamlessly and to kind of the highest you know degree when we think about uh, you know quality of care. What was it like when you uh, received notice of that award, that recognition and the grant from Amazon? That must have been a pretty thrilling experience. Yeah, you know, it was very exciting. Um, certainly, you know, in the past had, uh, you know, won awards from other agencies, um, but more traditional through the Small Business Innovative Research Grant Awards, which if you don't know about them, small plug. All of these awards uh, often are kind of falling into this small business, you know, innovative research grant uh, kind of category for which they give you money to develop and do the R&D, de-risk your company, but they don't ask for any equity, nothing. It's it's just basically, please innovate. You've proven to us the science. Please complete this. And you do. These are very exciting prospects because we can do things that you know we believe in we believe have value but everyone else is asking you to show them and they're not willing to take that risk so you're able to use these funds to de-risk the endeavors early on not put up personal capital or give away equity to others or have you know other means of funding so very exciting. Um, it was a social mission. Um, and, you know, clearly, you know, seeing patients in my office, you recognize the barriers to, to access to care and to be able to afford an opportunity to break those down is very rewarding, to, to say the least. Tell me about as you have sort of processed and synthesized the data and the findings, specifically like differences in, you know, like treatment pathways for between ethnicity, between gender. It's kind of a 
that's sort of shocking in some ways, but also it's kind of not, I suppose. I mean, it's, it's, tell me about the process of you like looking at and absorbing this data, thinking about your personal experience, and then how does that hit you? What does that, how does that motivate you? And do you find it like when you walk into an exam room, you're kind of, that now is on the front of your brain, the things that are happening out there and the potential impact for you and in other practices that you've observed? Yeah, you know, it's kind of uh, through the story that I told, you know, it took you through multiple steps, like recognize a problem for which there was no data, devising a mechanism to collect the data, devising a mechanism to report the the data, both either on an independent platform or within the electronic health record system, and then have data pipelines that deliver reports and dashboards to look at things like outcomes, costs, costs associated with outcomes, and then like we said, barriers to access to care. And a lot of that, you know, is certainly at the forefront of my mind as I I know the data behind it. And a lot of the data, I'm not repeating a lot of the studies and a lot of the data, you'd have to add trigger warnings and stuff to this because this gets into like really racial disparities in America, gender issues in America, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that um, certainly are, are just atrocious to say the least. But when you think about things of all of those different domains and you think about, you know, the first thing, you know, we think about is, you know, uh, this, you know, socioeconomic factors that brought the patient there and who they are. And that dictates people's care because there's subconscious physician and biases that, that happen. So it's very important to, to recognize those upfront, certainly before you walk in or just through all medical decisions. But there's other things, and I didn't mention it, so I'm bringing it up now. There's cost associated with these poor outcomes as well. So, you know, start, uh, let's say somebody has a medication and they're on a low, medium, or high dose. There's costs associated with all three of those. Now add in something that's a controlled substance and it's low, medium, or high dose. Those are three different cost levels. At the highest cost level, the medication costs more. It is uh, harder to obtain or requires more frequent monitoring or interaction or more testing. It requires more frequent visits or utilization of the healthcare system. But similarly for then the procedures or procedures, the more invasive or more complex that they are also would bring people back in a more routine interval or have a higher kind of cost associated with them. But you could basically get information from a patient and even whether that's from electronic health record, their you know information of who they are and uh, et cetera, or you know the diseases and the comorbidities, the other diseases that they have, as well as you know kind of their how they're doing. What is their average pain score, function score, mood, and you know kind of mental health score? How are their risk indices? You know you could determine outcomes and costs on that and make accurate predictions. Not that that's, um, that, that's kind of an administrative side, like a physician isn't often doing that. But if you thought about the health of a state, that's like in the public health domain, that's where those questions are very important. And you would ask, you know, for example, do people over 65 have good access to interventional chronic pain physicians in my state? Do people who have cancer, do females who have cancer have good access to, you know, high high quality chronic pain medicine? Similarly, for those of various social economic backgrounds, 
educational, racial backgrounds, all of those are, are very important as we think about as you know, an entire state or large populations or an entire um, you know health network or insurer network, are we just are you know are we meeting these you know are we delivering high quality care and you know those are a, a lot of you know considerations. It rolls into a larger conversation of what now we call value based care. Even a little bit, you know, what we're even talking about is precision medicine. It's you know, taking a physician, asking some questions to now understanding actual objective measures where you could compare or understand, you know, and stratify where someone might be in a pathway to getting them to feel better and understanding how to intervene to get them to feel better. And then, you know, that that those second components are monitoring that process, you know, um, how well are you delivering it to populations? How well are you, you know, getting people better? And, you know, value-based care obviously is focused around doing so and having in reimbursement uh, from insurers match that rather than current models where everything you do has a price, where it's just, you did a blood draw, so you get $22. Value-based care is saying either outcomes-based, like if you got the blood, you get $22. You don't get the blood, you get $5. Or as a risk. So if you take care of a population that we know people may not want to do blood draws on, you get more money. And if you do it on just a totally healthy person, less money. Uh, Other ways are quality metrics. So if you draw the blood, but you don't cause a bruise, you get your $22. You cause a bruise, you get $18. If they have to come back to the hospital because of how you drew your blood, you you have to pay for that on your own. And we're not even going to pay for it. There's a lot of different ways. And then there's bundling of care that we're actually not even going to pay for the blood draw at all. It's the larger picture is that that patient came into their, their doctor for a routine annual checkup. And it just so happens they needed a blood draw. And that's just a single payment Altogether, so it's also like bundling that it's assumed every American should have a yearly checkup, blood draw should be part of it, and it's just paid for it as as a total bundle, you know, a, as a whole. And those are you know kind of uh, where where things are going, you know, in the next several years. So the capabilities that you're developing with this company, with this data, and the ways that you're looking at it, there's a number of initiatives that I think are probably pretty exciting. And that when implemented will be revolutionary at the population level, at the equipping physicians level, at the patient care level. What is the part of your company's capability? What's the name of your company, by the way? Which the one we're talking about? So the product is called Pain Scored and uh, the the corporation is called uh, Patient Premier. So for Pain Scored, what is the capability or the potential capability about which you're most excited? I think it would just to be an independent, neutral third party of quality that you'd be trusted by patients, physicians, and industry to assess quality and the insurers to assess quality without bias. That the patients would not feel biased in telling you how they feel, like they're not going to have to tell you that they're sicker. They're not going to have to tell you that they're not sick. They're going to feel comfortable telling you how they feel and know that you're on their side to translate that, how they're feeling into a language that doctors and the health system can understand. 
On the physician side, it's sitting there and getting data, just like we have, let's say, prescription drug monitoring programs where they aggregate all of the scripts that a patient has filled in one single document. So a physician or their you know clinic doesn't have to call every pharmacy in the area to figure it out. They just have a summary of it. We want to provide that summary just right on a physician's, you know, right in the electronic health record. They just open it up for each patient and they get this assessment of how someone is doing. And for health systems, be that party who can assess care uh, throughout their health system to, you know, make sure that nobody is falling off the curves for quality access to care and things like that. For insurers, it's that, and also partially with industry, it's that neutral third party as insurers will want to claw back when things don't work and get reimbursed when things don't work, you know, get money back. And, you know, industry has to then prove what they're doing, you know, pharma as well as medical device, prove that what they're doing is making impact on patients' lives through all of the different domains and ways that one could. You know, going back to what I said earlier with the story, it's similar to saying, well, if you want to repeat procedure, you have to tell me that you have 50% functional improvement, 50% mood improvement, 50% pain improvement, 50% sleep improvement, something. You return to work. And getting that information and making sure that everyone's on the same page is kind of the, the overarching goal and what's most exciting. Because at the moment, it's subjective left to the ability for the patient to communicate, for the physician to interpret, there's physician bias there as well, documented appropriately, have the health system aggregate that documentation appropriately, and then have an insurer interpret that documentation appropriately, and then similar with industry for like post-market surveillance and things like this. Very complex, multiple points of failure, and um, looking to you know just help everyone through the process. It seems like a very simple thing, uh, yet you know before we started, it was not. You know, it was, we don't we didn't use it in clinical practice to get information outside of office visits from patients and collect objective data. You know, we tried to take surveys maybe one time in an initial visit. You know, everyone jokes you you fill out this paperwork in the beginning of a visit. Where does it go? No one's going to hand score it. Or if you forget to answer a question, you can't score it because it may no longer be a valid assessment. This largely was either not actually put in the charts for enhanced documentation or rather even made clinical use of. And now you're talking the you know, kind of exact opposite at the fingertips, right on a report, right in an actionable format that doesn't require anybody to think about tech or how does this get into my electronic health record system or how does a patient access this? It's just right there. Just like our prescription drug monitoring reports, just like lab results or a MRI report is just at everyone's fingertips to look at. Patient gets it in their portal, doctor gets it in their portal, you know, insurers can request or, you know, understand what's going on with the care, et cetera. What's been the most difficult part of this journey? Or did you experience any moments of profound doubt where you thought you bumped into something that this might be a deal breaker? I don't know if we can solve this challenge. Yeah. I mean, at first I would just start with anyone who has ever started any business in any industry. One of the most success factors is like extreme perseverance that the person will never give up no matter what. Those are the people who succeed. That's kind of a double-edged sword. Like clearly you can't like run everything into the ground uh, and then just carry on with a failed plan for decades. Like, of course, that's not going to work. You have to be, you have to be nimble and, and pivot. 
But you know, ultimately, it, it is what makes people successful is the ability to take failure, pivot, be flexible, and um, be extremely perseverant. That um, I've seen multiple companies that I never way bigger than my company, bigger ideas, bigger patient loads go bankrupt. I've, I've my you know, let's you know what I've been doing. It's very interesting to see, for example, my passion outlive other people's passion and ideas, even when you didn't think that that was possible. I mean, things can fail overnight. We have publicly traded companies that go under and go bankrupt. So you have to be very persistent. For me, for a personal example, you know, I think it's certainly some large, I've had some large organizations go bankrupt and uh, not be able to use our products when, you know, we we kind of finally integrated or finally got like a huge project off the ground and they, they failed. You know, those are that's really hard uh, to see because you, you you're kind of excited to you know see a vision through and and you couldn't grant applications venture capital that just didn't work out you know certainly even pivoting this from various from a development perspective pivoting from at first we did this in house like just me coding then that that fouled. I can't, I can't now it's a team of 10, you know, plus, you know, so then we had outsourced developers. Then we had development houses. Now we use Amazon Web Service affiliate partners, uh, like innovative solutions. And that, you know, kind of represents failures or changes in the company, but also represents being very nimble, you know, certainly again, yes, like, I, you know, got to a point where like, you had to realize very honestly, like, this is just a demo. I can't take it further. And then that's where, you know, you let the next stage take over from there. Um, but yeah, you know, had failed contracts, venture capital agreements, grant funding, you know, where you get phase one, but you don't get phase two and, and things like this. Um, but really just let you rolled off and moved on. No worse for wear. And certainly there were times where it was like, yeah, you know, we're under, you know, we, we need $2,000 and I put in my personal money or, you know, and same thing with my business partner and, you know, got through rough times, certainly by taking additional risk. And that's the other component that, you know, there is a risk also associated with, uh, you know, running any uh, uh, business. So, you know, that that's what you're also working against. There, there is intellectual property risk, um, execution risk, security risks, et cetera, et cetera, that you have to go through, mitigate, you know, funding risks and finance risks and stuff like that as well. Conversely, did you have a moment in the life cycle of pain scored where you thought, I think we're going to make it now? Yeah, we had operated for like one or two, there's like three, I think, major inflection points. The first was making our first money, like first customer It's huge. Maybe before that, maybe like product release. So the first thing is like, making the first product. Second thing was then getting the customer to use it and start actually generating revenue, like major inflection points in the company. The other ones are like landing larger customers. Of course, as you grew that, it got more exciting. Being able to do more with the tech, like what I had just written down five years ago, now is like possible. So like major inflection points were the first even five years ago, it was a little bit harder to integrate with electronic health record systems. Um, so when we first initially started, we had an independent platform to allow people to utilize our, you know, everything we've created. 
without a tech burden, the barriers to entry was maybe the same thing as signing up for an email service, just log in and you have everything at your fingertips. But then I think one major tech innovation was electronic health record integration and various milestones along the way for making, improving automation workflows for patients and physicians and the admin um, and industry that were feature sets that we'd first just dreamed of and thought of and were like, wow, like, wouldn't it be cool if I had a dashboard that did this, if we showed that dashboard like this and then actually doing it? It's just so cool to see it in practice, but yeah, really enjoyed it. Cool. I think that's a great place for us to stop. Dr. Brian Mariscalki, thank you very much for joining us today on Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. And thank you so much for having me. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.